Today's sermon comes from John 20, 11 through 31. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of them, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We all love a good story, but not just a good story, but a story that is headed towards darkness and dead end and seeming failure. And then out of the ashes, this new story of a new trajectory launches. We have so many examples of this in our world. I'll share with you a few. J.K. Rowling, who's the author of the Harry Potter series. Do you know that the, the, the first book in the series, that the manuscript for that book was rejected 12 times by publishers? Five years before uh, she wrote the, or was published with the first book, she was on welfare and struggling as a single mother. Right, a story that turns the corner. Or uh, Steven Spielberg, right, one of the most respected Hollywood directors. He was rejected by his school of choice for film three times. We know where that story ended up. Walt Disney right, started his first animation company. It launched in 1921. And then because he got into severe debt, had to go into bankruptcy. And actually had several more failures before this tiny little thing called Walt Disney and Disney World launched, right? And then, of course, there's uh, Michael Jordan, 
right? Five foot, 11, sophomore in high school, tries out for his varsity basketball team, and he gets cut. As a sophomore in high school, how do you like to be that coach at this point, right? Now, I'm sh- I just shared with you some stories, and you may hear this and go, great. This is going to be an Easter message about I'm, I'm going I'm to try harder. I'm going to persevere. I'm in the midst of seeming failure. So if I can just like these people really hang in there and really press on and really persevere, my story that seems to be coming to a dark ending or a dark close or in a place of failure is going to turn the corner and rise and there's going to be success. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. While those are examples of stories that are in a place of failure and darkness that rise, the story we're looking at this morning in John 20, that is a story of stories that have come to what seems to be a dark end and then take a rise, they don't change because of the perseverance and the hard work and the trying hardness of the characters in the story. In fact, in John 20, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas, their story doesn't change because they pressed on. Their story doesn't change because they persevered. Their story changed And therefore, the story of the world and our story today changed because Jesus Christ, God, Lord, creator, who had entered creation, his creation in space and time, lived a perfect life, died a horrendous death, didn't stay in the tomb. He rose. He rose from the grave. And that is the reason why we're going to see a story that changes. A dark story for Mary Magdalene, for Thomas, for the disciples, that turns and rises into story of joy and a story of hope. Jesus' resurrection rewrites the narrative of our world. And the question is, how does Jesus' resurrection rewrite the story of our world? That as you know, desperately is in need of rewriting. And we're going to look at these three interactions to look at what is really three chapters in this new story that Jesus is writing. And the first chapter is a new family. And we're going to see this in Jesus' interaction with Mary Magdalene. Now, who is Mary Magdalene? We don't know a whole lot about her, but we know this in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. It says that Jesus Christ cast seven demons out of her. And after he healed her, she started to follow Jesus. She was at the crucifixion at the cross. She was at the tomb when they rolled the stone in front of the tomb. Now, seven demons, what in the world does that mean? Well, all we can know is that from other examples of demon possession in the Gospels is that someone that was possessed by a demon experienced significant mental and physical illness. They were were crazy. They were tormented. Uh, Many times they were actually locked up. You think of a psych ward. That was what what happened with demon possessions. In fact, in in Luke chapter 8, we have the man, the example of the man who was Uh, chained up. He was in chains. 
They locked him down because he was so crazy before Jesus healed him. So what do we say about Mary Magdalene? Well, all we know is she had seven demons when Jesus healed her, which means that that was an extreme case. So we can assume that she was a woman who was tormented. She was a woman who was mentally sick. She was a woman who was isolated because that's what demon possession did. It isolated people. She was probably shunned. She probably didn't have stable relationships. And all that changed when Jesus Christ healed her and she started to follow him. And now we see here that Jesus Christ appears to her first. Now, this is absolutely striking, right? The move goes from verse 10 to verse 11, that the disciples leave. And it says in verse 11 that Mary Magdalene is standing at the tomb weeping. And then she looks in and she sees two angels in white, says, where have they put Jesus? They say, why are you looking here? Then she turns around and Jesus Christ appears to this woman. He appears to her. And she assumes he's the gardener and says, where have they put Jesus? And then Jesus says, Mary. He calls her by name. And it says that she clung to him. Probably what she did is she probably fell to her knees and she grabbed hold of him and she wouldn't let go. Now, now just pause for a second. We're talking about the greatest event in the history of the world. Jesus Christ, God, Lord, creator of the universe, bodily rises out of the grave. And you say, who do you think that Jesus would appear to first? Maybe Peter? the man upon whom the New Testament church would be founded, maybe John, the author of this gospel, the one who had this special place in Jesus' heart, maybe the Pharisees or the scribes, the religious authorities of the day, right, who had a tremendous influence and control, or maybe he would appear to Pilate first, the man who was the most powerful man at the world at that point. And the answer is no. He appears first to a woman who had been sick and possessed by seven demons. This is astonishing. It's shocking on two accounts. Number one, in the first century, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered credible evidence in court. And yet Jesus appears first to a woman. If you've got doubts about the Bible, if you've got doubts about the reliability of the Bible, this is one of those evidences that points to the very reliability of the, of the Bible. Because if you were gonna concoct a story about a man, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, the last thing you would do is make a woman the first witness. The only conclusion is this must have really happened. <laughs> The second reason it's shocking is that, I've said it already, Jesus Christ first appears to a woman who was, had been sick and possessed by seven demons, that that's who he appears to. Why does Jesus appear to her first? 
Because Jesus calls the broken. Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls the weak. Jesus calls the outcasts. Jesus calls the needy. Jesus calls those who are hopeless. Jesus calls those who have no purpose. He does not call those who are perfect. He doesn't call the righteous. He calls the sick. And that is why I believe he appeared to Mary Magdalene first, is to make that point loud and clear. In fact, Paul makes it in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You feel unworthy? You feel like your sin is too great? You feel like you have such a sordid, messy, dysfunctional past, too messy and too dysfunctional? That's exactly what Jesus Christ moves towards. He moves towards you in love because Jesus calls the broken. Jesus calls the unworthy. Now the question is, what does he call you to? What's he call you to? Look at what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene in verse 17. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus calls his disciples his brothers. And he calls God the Father, Mary Magdalene's Father, and the disciples' Father. That Jesus is creating here a family and he's calling Mary Magdalene to it. Now, just think about this. Think about Mary Magdalene's story. A broken woman. A woman who had been possessed by seven demons and we can assume therefore shunned, isolated, tormented, probably unstable relationships. And now she hears from her risen Lord that she is part of a family, the family of God. There's a place for Mary Magdalene's in the family of God. There's a place for you in the family of God. Romans chapter eight says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That means daddy. It's intimate language. But the same access that Jesus Christ had to his father in him becomes your same access to the father. That Jesus is calling a family. Ravi Zacharias, he shares the story of two of his friends who established uh, an orphanage. And this was an orphanage specifically for kids who had been born with a, with a, deformed. They were deformed at birth. And so they started this orphanage and they would get medical help to correct what was correctable. And then they would find families who would adopt these children. And there's one little boy in this orphanage who kept he kept getting, he got looked over. He wouldn't get chosen. And the reason is he had a severe, severe and rare brain malfunction. 
And so this little boy watched as his housemates got chosen and taken by families into, into families of love over and over. And he began asking the question in the orphanage, why, why am I not being chosen? And then through a, a series of incredible events, a family who had already adopted a child out of the orphanage chose to adopt, come back and adopt this little boy. And before they came to pick him up, they, they sent the orphanage the new name they had chosen for him. And it was Anson Josiah, which was to short AJ. And this little boy in this orphanage, as he waited for his new family to come pick him up, this little boy who no one wanted, this little boy who watched everyone else get chosen, began walking around this orphanage with his chest puffed out, pointing to his chest, saying, you can call me AJ. My name is AJ. Now that's a boy with a severe brain dysfunction that can grasp the profound worth of a new name and a new family. That is what Jesus calls you to. He called Mary by name, and that's when she woke up and recognized him. He calls you by name. He's calling you by name this morning. Regardless of your past, regardless of how much sin that you think you have that makes you unworthy, he moves towards you and he calls your name. And he calls you to a family unlike any family you've ever been a part of. And I can say that whether you grew up in a very put together household or whether you grew up in an extremely dysfunctional broken family. Because the family of God is the church of God. And the church is a gathering of diverse people of different race, of different socioeconomic background, of different educational levels, of different political views, rallied around one thing in common, and that is the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what he calls you to, a new family where you share one thing in common, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It's a fellowship of the unworthy. That's the church. The fellowship of the unworthy, sharing commonness in Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus' resurrection rewrite the narrative of our world? It starts in our very polarized world, and you know what that is. On every conceivable level, our world is polarized. And Jesus is writing a new story where he's calling together his church, diverse as it can be, around the commonness of himself, a new family. Second, chapter two of this story that Jesus is writing is a new life. So after he appears to Mary Magdalene, then he appears to his disciples. And we see in verse 19, it says that they were, for fear of the Jews, behind locked doors. And Jesus comes to them, and here we go again. The very first words that he speaks to his disciples, the first thing that comes out of his mouth to his disciples is this, peace be with you. He says it again in verse 21. He actually says it a third time in verse 26. So if Jesus repeats this three times, peace be with you, 
we better understand what it means. The word peace here, it's, a, it's, it's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word shalom. And shalom is a word that describes flourishing on every conceivable level. Life flourishing emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. It just describes complete flourishing. It's a life free from fear and anxiety and worry. And so here's Jesus coming to his disciples who are trembling in fear. And you see why. They had just killed Jesus, their master. Their right conclusion is, we're next. And Jesus comes and says to them, peace. Peace be with you. Now, what in the world and how in the world is that possible with what the disciples are facing? How does Jesus deliver this peace? Well, I want you to note here that he doesn't deliver it through good reasoning. If you look at verse 21, after he promises them peace, then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Listen, if Jesus was delivering this peace, right? Freedom from anxiety, from fear, from worry, flourishing, all of that. If he was delivering it through good reasoning, he would have said something like this. Listen, stay in this room. Keep the door locked. Pull the shades. They won't know you're here, okay? And you'll be safe. Or he might've said, hey, listen, get ready because I've enrolled you in the Jerusalem Witness Protection Program. And I'm coming back tonight in the dark and I'm gonna sweep you out of the room and I'm gonna take you off to some faraway island and give you a new identity and they'll never know you exist and you'll live happily ever after. No, what does he say to them? (laughs) He essentially says, peace be with you. I'm gonna send you into the very thing you're afraid of. I'm gonna send you into the very thing you're afraid of. You're afraid of dying? because they killed me, guess what? I'm gonna send you out to them to tell them that I'm alive, to tell them about the risen Christ. He sends them into the jaws of death. So then, so clearly, Jesus doesn't deliver this peace through good reasoning or through favorable circumstances or a change of circumstances. So how does he deliver it? Look at verse 22. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This promised peace did not come from within. This promised peace came from a power outside of them, the very breath, the very spirit of God. And this is language that's very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter two, when God creates the first man, Adam, and his body is there, but it's lifeless. And God breathes life into Adam, and he becomes a living being. That was the first creation. And now we see here in what is recreation, which John wants to make it really clear that you get that by the phrase that's repeated several times in chapter 20, which is it's the first day of the week. The first day of the week. It's a new day. It's the start of new creation with Jesus bursting forth from the tomb. 
And here he is again, Jesus breathing his very life into his disciples to make them new people so that they can go out and then share with the world this same life and offer new life to the world. And so peace, the absence of fear and anxiety, is delivered through the breath or spirit of God. The question becomes, how do you receive it? Jesus promises it. He delivers it through his spirit, through the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. How do you receive it? Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is describing the continued earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus is basically saying to his disciples, listen, when I walked this earth, those that received me, their sins were forgiven. Those that rejected me, they, they remained in their sin, unforgiven. I'm calling you to go out and bear witness and share the message of the gospel and you will see the same thing happen. Those that receive me will be forgiven. Those that reject me will remain in their sin. Question is, what is sin? What is sin? You know, we quickly, when we talk about sin, we go to behavior, lying, cheating, stealing, sexual morality. And those are certainly sins. But sin behaviorally flows out of something much deeper. And that much deeper thing is called control. In fact, the very first sin committed in the garden, the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the world, was the sin of control. Adam and Eve chose to take control of their lives and walk independently of God. And they did that because they were tempted by the evil one. They started to doubt God's goodness. And doubting God's goodness, they said, I, I, we will not entrust our lives to a God that's not good. And so they took control of their lives and they began to seek their own happiness, their own worth, their own purpose, their own identity apart from God. And that independence led to disaster. Their marriage fell apart. Adam and Eve's marriage fell apart. Their family fell apart. The world began to unravel all the way to today. And it was birthed out of control. And the question is why? Why did the world begin to unravel when, our, when, when Adam and Eve, first human beings, decided to take control? Why did it unravel? Because, it projects to today, you, as a human being, are not designed or equipped to run your life independent of God. Let me say that again. You, as a human being, are not designed or equipped to run your life independent of God. And when you do, it's like, it's like putting bicycle brakes on a high-powered sports car. It's like putting bicycle brakes on a high-powered sports car. What's that going to end in? Disaster, right? But that's sin, and that's what flows out of when we, when we ultimately run our lives independent of God. And then all the behavioral sin flows from that. But it starts with this core sin. 
of control. Control gives birth to sin. If, if you try to control your, your career, I'll give you an example. If you try to control your career, your vocational career, you're likely to mistreat people to get ahead. Or you're likely to lie or maybe just withhold the truth to increase your position. Or you're likely to neglect your family and work crazy hours to try to earn that promotion. Right? If you try to control your career, it leads to behavioral sin. But the issue is the core sin of control, living independent of God. And in that case, looking to your career to be God and to satisfy you. Now, you could inject anything into your career there, athletic career, academic career, whatever the pursuit may be. You know, the sin of control or the control is an issue in parenting as well. Becky Pipper, she writes a book called Hope Has Its Reasons. And she records a conversation she had with a, a very famous physicist who confided in her. Listen to what he said. I'm a scientist, you know, a rational person. I've never seen much need for God. All my life, I've felt in charge and in control. I've been extremely successful and made it to the top. If there's a problem at work, I call a meeting or I write a note to my secretary and it is quickly resolved. Yet nothing is simple or easily resolved at home. My children don't relate to me easily. They accuse me of trying to control their lives. When I walk into the same room as my son, he starts to stammer. What hurts is that they can't seem to appreciate how much I care and that I'm doing all of this for them. But I'll tell you one lesson I've learned. I always said that since I had my children's best interests at heart, they'd be glad for my direction. My children have taught me the hardest lesson of my life, that I'm not in control over what matters to me most. It's funny, but it's now when I see I'm not God that I see I need some help. The question of whether there is a God has finally started to matter. This illusion of control, it's an illusion. It becomes very apparent really quickly. It takes a simple example of you getting caught behind an accident on 295 and being late to a very important business meeting that you realize I'm really not in control. And what happens is that when we, and again, this is the core sin that we struggle with, that when we try to control things and then we realize we can't, it leads to a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety and worry that that's what happens at the end of that road. So, so what it means is that fear and anxiety, which every person here experiences, fear and anxiety are the emotional red flags that we are functionally living independent of God and controlling our lives and controlling our situations. Those are the red flags that say we're living independent. So how do you receive the peace that Jesus promises? Repent. Repent and turn from the attempts to control your life and to live independent of God. Repent 
and turn to Jesus. And the scriptures say that when you do, when you repent, you ask forgiveness and you turn to Jesus, that he will breathe into you his Holy Spirit that will fill you with the very life of God and you become a new creation, you become a new person. And here's what happens, that when you become a new person, you get a new story and you're not writing that story anymore. God writes the story and it brings a tremendous amount of peace when you realize I'm not writing the story of my life anymore. God is. I don't have the pen in my hand and there's this tremendous flood. Not because you've worked it up internally, but because the Holy Spirit brings it. That my life is in the hands of God and he is writing this new story and there will be twists and turns, there will be good and bad. But at the end of the day, I don't have the pen in my hand and it brings a tremendous amount of peace that my all-powerful, loving, sovereign God is writing the story of my life. So how does Jesus rewrite the narrative of our world? New family, chapter two, new life. And then chapter three, a new world. A new world, we pick this up in his interaction with Thomas. You'll note in, in Jesus' interaction with Thomas, there's two striking details that surface two times. And those details are scars on Jesus' body and locked doors. And these two details are the key to understanding what Jesus is doing, and it'll explain the story he's writing in this new world. So the first one, why are there scars on Jesus' body? Why is Thomas able to see the nails in his hand? Why is Thomas able to see the, the, uh, the scar on his side where they had thrust the spear to him while he was hanging on the cross? Why? It's because the new world, the new heavens and the new earth will be a physical place. Let me explain that. John is going out of his way as the author of this gospel to make this clear. In fact, in chapter 21, he, he brings out the detail that Jesus eats fish with his disciples. You're like, what? Why? Because Jesus isn't a ghost. There's continuity between his pre-death body and his post-resurrection body. And the reason John is going out of his way to, to describe this is because in the first century when John was writing, there was a philosophy that was beginning to take root in the culture. And it was called, the big word, it's called Gnosticism. It meant this, that the physical and the material are bad. They're evil and spiritual is good. So the whole goal of life was to get away from the evil world and the physical world and our physical bodies and that our souls one day would just escape all that and be in this immaterial existence. And John is saying, no, that's not the gospel. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ and you're maybe checking out the claims of Christianity, let me tell you one of the big differences between Christianity and a number of other world religions. Christianity does not talk about a future life that is some immaterial existence where we float in eternity somewhere. And honestly, if that turns you off, you're like, that's just not very attractive. I, I agree with you. 
I agree with you. That's kind of nonsense. If that's the case, why are we here? Why do we have physical bodies? Why do we have a physical world? Doesn't make any sense. That's what John's trying to say here, exactly. That's why Jesus' body has scars. Because the future is a very physical place with physical bodies in a physical world. Listen, God made bodies because he loves bodies. God made a physical world because he loves the physical world and he's redeeming both. And so here's the takeaway. The goal is not to become less human. Sometimes that happens. We just gotta be less human and somehow elevate to this elevated spiritual existence. No, what John is saying here is the goal is to become more human according to God's design. That's the first striking detail. And that changes everything. Changes the way you view your body, changes the way you view work, recreation, this world, what you eat, art, business, everything. Second, why the emphasis on the locked doors? He says that twice, verse 19 and 26. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He's making it clear that Jesus passed through the walls. He passed through the doors. And so while there's continuity with the scars of Jesus' pre-death body, this passing through doors says that he has a new body, a new kind of body that can't be touched by death. And so what we see here in these post-resurrection appearances is that it's as if Jesus is coming and going as though he belongs to this world, but as he belongs to a completely different world. And so while the new world is gonna be physical, it's gonna be remade. It's gonna be remade. In fact, John, the author of this gospel, also authored the book of Revelation. Listen to what he said in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He's talking about that world, that different world that's coming. But then listen to what he says. And he who was seated on the throne, Jesus Christ said, behold, I am making all things new. Which means that today, right now, Jesus is ushering in his new world, his new creation. He's ushering in new life. He's doing that now. He's rewriting the story that you desperately need in your life. He's rewriting the story that this world desperately needs. Question is, how does he rewrite your story? How does he rewrite your story? Look at verse 29. This is after Thomas believes and shouts, my Lord, my God. Look at what Jesus says to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That word blessed means happy. It means happy. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Who's he speaking of there? Well, the centuries all the way up to today. That the way that Jesus rewrites the story in your life is through belief. You believe. You believe who he is as the son of God. And then he gives you a new family and a new life and the hope of a new world. And when he does that, there's this happiness, this joy, this deep abiding joy that resonates inside upon belief. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for new stories. 
We thank you for the new story of Alex's life. How you, Jesus, risen Lord, rescued him, drew him to yourself. And Father, we thank you for the stories in this room, hundreds of stories in this room, how you, Jesus, risen Lord, have come to rescue us, how you have pursued us with your love. And Father, there are those here this morning that have been resisting your pursuit. Father, we pray by your spirit that you would bring softening to their hearts and that they would believe, that they would repent, that they would turn from running independent of you and fall to your feet because of the love that you have for them. And that, Father, you would write a new story, a new story that would culminate in where all of our stories will culminate when, Jesus, you return and make everything right once and for all in the new world that you're bringing. Father, would you help us to continue to worship towards that end? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.